0: Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Hill, let me add my welcome to what's already been said. Uh, thank you, uh, Pastor James, a special word of thanks to him. Uh, I had to be out of town It was my own fault. I didn't plan well. I didn't write it down that I was in fact going to miss Sunday. So he gets kind of an emergency call two weeks ago. Hey man, need somebody to fill fill the pulpit. And I'm in the middle of a series. So I need you to preach on this exact topic. And uh, your man, James Lecce, he comes through in the clutch. And uh, yeah, so he was like, I got it. Yep. So uh, James did a great job uh, preaching at my church last Sunday night. So thanks for that. And uh, our folks were blessed. So, sitting on a hill is a blessing to New Hope in Queens. And it's great to know that uh, we have folks in Long Island that have got our back. And Queens, uh, we've got your back. That there are Christians all over this place that are supporting one another and working together for the common good. It's good to be a partner with you. The last time I was here was my favorite holiday, Valentine. No, President's Day Eve president's day eve and uh valentine's day seems like a long time ago but i began a little two-part mini-series on the book of second timothy and i called it unashamed and i told you then if you were there weeks ago that i wouldn't forget i would come back and finish up that second half of second timothy on the topic of unashamed so if you have your bibles Open them up to Paul's letter to Timothy, the second letter. It's called Second Timothy. It's toward the very back of your Bible. I'll also have some verses up here on the screen for you. You can follow along that way. You can turn on your electronic device, depending on how many lumens you have, and you'll be able to see Second Timothy there, but somehow get there. And just so that everybody's on the same page, Second Timothy, First and Second Timothy are letters from a man named Paul to his young protege, Timothy. Paul was a church planter. His job was to build up churches. His ministry was to get churches started. Then he would go on and plant other churches, other ministries. We won't take time to go into all the history of Paul, how he was formerly Saul, a Pharisee, whose job was to persecute the church. He thought these Christians were this sort of cult that was going to take Judaism the wrong direction. So he wanted to stamp them out until he met the risen Lord Jesus. And when Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, was there in front of him, he realized, Oh man, I've been doing this wrong. These people are in fact following the risen Lord. And so Paul, uh, blinded by this great revelation, there's an irony there. The minute Paul could finally see, he was struck blind. And then uh, whole life radically changes. Saul becomes Paul. is persecuted by the Roman emperor, b- Empire because everywhere he goes, there's these riots. He's disturbing the peace. He gets caught sort of in the gears of Roman government. And sure enough, eventually is shipped all the way to Rome to rot in this prison. The way the trials worked, they had this sort of preliminary trial, sort of a preliminary hearing and arraignment where Paul would be brought forth, the charges would be, uh, would be laid out. And Paul, if you were here in Valentine's Day, I talked about this on February 14th, but Paul basically sees this moment and this is the moment when your character witnesses would come and stand next to you. This is the moment when they say, look, here's the charges, here's what you're up against. Now, who will come and speak for Paul's defense? crickets. Paul's like, come on, nobody, nobody. And just when he needed those friends, they weren't there. And so, you know, uh, 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 someone would come hopefully and say, well, you know, Paul's you should have clemency because he's not that bad a guy. I can speak for him. You know, he's a Roman citizen for one thing and you know, kind of going nobody. But he says the Lord stood by him in that moment. So he's thrown into, I mean, guilty. He's thrown into this prison, sort of awaiting Uh, really sentencing. The next thing that's going to happen in Paul's life, he's in Nero's dungeon. History tells us there would have been a little hole in the ceiling for light and air. But other than that, a, a dirt floor stifling hot in the summer, bitterly cold in the winter. The next person who comes through that door is going to be the executioner. The next time he's Free. The next time he's able to walk around is going to be on the walk to his beheading. Now, Paul would have been beheaded instead of crucified or fed to the lions because he was a Roman citizen. At least they wouldn't do this torture. They would uh, have a swift beheading. But nonetheless, it's a letter from a pastor on death row. Remember, he's here in prison for doing nothing wrong. In fact, he did something right. He's preaching the gospel. He's trying to help the people. He's trying to preach the good news. And for this, he's thrown into this dungeon. So here we have a guy on death row. It's intensely personal. He's writing to his young protege, Timothy, who is, who is way too timid. He has this sort of milk toast immune system that can't fight off any kind of disease. He's a sickly kid. He doesn't know what he's doing. And he's about to hand off his life's work to this guy. He's languishing in a mud floor dungeon. He's hated by his enemies. And in the midst of all that, what strikes me is what's missing in Second Timothy. It's not what's in this book that gets me when I read it, it's what's missing. And what's missing is the whining. Like, where's the self pity? You realize if this had been my situation i'm in a dungeon about to be beheaded for something i didn't do my life's work is being jeopardized and i'm about to have to hand off my life's work to someone who's not prepared i may see all of my work go up in flames for nothing for what for doing what's right this wouldn't be second timothy this would be second lamentations I would be all about crying and you would see self-pity and be, God, this isn't fair. And why? Why is this happening? It'd be chapter after chapter of what is the deal? What's going on with Timothy? There's none of that. I mean, I mean, with Paul's letter to Timothy, there's none of that. So the sermon today is how do you get that? How do you get that? How do you get that perfect peace? You may not be languishing in a Roman dungeon, but I don't know where you work. It could be that it very much feels that way. It could be that when I say, "Hey, Paul had perfect peace in the midst of all this chaos," you may be saying, "Yeah, I would really like that. I'd really like that," because your thing may not be a uh, 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 an actual imprisonment, but you may have enemies. You may there may be haters. There may be this sense that you're you're tempted to feel. Uh, ashamed when you should feel bold and unashamed of the gospel at work people begin talking about politics you know and nobody wants to talk about that but at least it's an election season people kind of jump in but then it comes to religion and whoo right nobody wants to touch that it's like wait wait, don't you go to church aren't you no no no, you're one of you're you're like are you you're one of those born-again's right and in that moment you're supposed to stand up and be bold and maybe use that as an opportunity to preach instead we we shrink back We feel bad. We know we're not supposed to. How do you have this kind of boldness? How do you have this kind of peace in the midst of all that chaos? And not only that, when it comes to others, I mean, we'll read in here, like, where's the bitterness? Usually when we're wrong, there's just a little bit of bitterness, right? And none of that, no self-pity, no justification, no blaming of others. I mean, when he talks about these enemies that did him wrong, he's like, well, you know, the Lord will deal with him. I'd be like, yeah, well, I'm praying for him. I'm praying the Lord smites him with a lightning bolt from on high, right? He's got none of that. I'm thinking, it's not fair. There, you know, how do you get that kind of peace? You know, he says, Alexander, the coppersmith, even names the guy. Alexander, the coppersmith did me great harm. And Paul never complains about anything. So, you know, when this guy did something, he must have done something bad. And he just says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That's not what you and I say. What we write is, Alexander the coppersmith did great harm. Timothy, get your boys. <laughs> a round of a posse. and We'll show Alexander the coppersmith. No. How do you get that perfect peace? And the answer, obviously, we're in church, so the answer is God. But we've got to be a little more specific. How do you have that kind of peace? Does this do anything for you? Uh, the Hebrew word is Shalom. Now, the definition of shalom is simple. Nothing missing, nothing broken. Perfect peace. Couldn't you use some shalom in your life? Don't you need that peace? How do you get it? And today I got a, really, it's a four-point sermon. And if you're a note-taker, you're going to love that because there's four actual points. You can write them down and you can have like sub-points and you can make a spreadsheet. You're going to love it, right? For all my right-brain thinkers. For my left brain, once upon a time. But for the rest of us, right? These four points. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. There are four steps to this perfect peace. And here's the problem. Three of them you can do. And I want you to do. The fourth is the most important. And ironically, you can't do it. So let me say it again. There are going to be these four points, okay? The first three are somewhat common sense. That Paul does them. They're all right here in the scripture. They're an example to follow. And I want you to do it. Okay, to get this perfect piece. But interestingly, the fourth one's the most important step. And it's the one that you can't do. So leave space for these three. I mean, the first three and then the fourth one. Just put a little star golden egg or something. I don't know. And be like, this one sounds mysterious. Okay, right. There we go. You with me? Everybody got the map? All right, then let's jump in. Second Timothy, chapter four, verse six. Here is some of the last words of the last letter written by Paul. A guy who wrote so much of the New Testament. Here it is. And you see this sort of legacy language. For I, he knows, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, he says. And the time of my departure has come. What does he mean? It means I'm at the end of my life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord... The righteous judge. Because see, he's been standing in front of all these crooked judges and he can't seem to get any justice on this earth, but he knows one day there will be justice. And the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, it's not that I'm Paul and I'm some super saint. No, to all who've loved his appearing. You see this language that he's, he's at the end, he's ready to make this handoff. And now his request steps to this perfect peace. He says, do your best to come to me soon. He wants him to come before winter. Why? The shipping lanes in the Adriatic Sea would close down every November. And if he missed that November cutoff, he would have to wait three or four months until the spring, until the thaw to come. And so he says, come to me soon. He says that Demas, and he he names some people. There's nobody here with me. Demas, in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now we read about Demas and some other parts of scripture. Basically he got some other priorities and so he deserted Paul. The others that he mentions are not necessarily, I mean, they're on official godly business. They're just not there with Paul. And so he misses his uh, companions. So he says, Crescens has gone to Galatia. Crescens is funny. We have no idea who Crescens is. He's only mentioned once in the New Testament. Right there. That's it. That's all you get of Crescens. Crescens is sort of a cameo appearance in the Bible. It'd be great. I'm Crescens. I'm here. Like gone forever. We never see him again. Crescens, the biblical ninja, is gone. We don't know him, but he's in Galatia. And Titus to Dalmatia. Now he says, Luke alone is with me. So finally, the beloved Onesiphorus found Paul, which was a friend. And Luke eventually found him. But none of them were there for the initial defense. So Luke, the author of Luke and Acts. He wrote two volumes, Luke and Acts. Uh, the, the old beloved physician, Dr. Luke is some commentators think that Luke actually wrote second Timothy. Paul just spoke it as the Holy spirit gave him inspiration. We don't know, but he says, get Mark. So Luke's with me and I want you to come Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you for he's very useful to me for ministry Tychicus, i I've left in Ephesus. So don't worry. I'll, your pulpit will be covered. I've left somebody there, but I want you to come Timothy and join us. And uh, also, let's just go back one second to this, get Mark and bring him with you. Look, this is not a sermon about Mark, but if it were, it's interesting that uh, John Mark and Paul, just to give you a little background, you may not know, uh, they had beef. Uh, John Mark uh, turns out uh, 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 deserted Paul when he needed him on an earlier missionary trip. And so Paul says Mark's a quitter. And there's this scene in the book of Acts where Mark's like, hey, I'm ready to go on another mission trip. And Paul says, you can go with somebody else, but you're not going with me. I got no space on my mission trip for a quitter, for someone who shirks their responsibility, and Barnabas is like, I'll take him. And Saul's like, you can have Barney. I mean, I mean, I mean, you can have Mark, Barnabas. I'm taking Silas. They have this sort of fantasy football draft of missionaries. And they're like, I got Silas in the first round. And I'll give you two second choices for Mark. But I'm not taking him, right? And so his value is going low. They're trying to, so, so, so Barnabas sees a buy low opportunity. The point is, they have this whole thing. And Mark and him are like, never again. And so here we see, it's kind of cool. We see a little bit of redemption. We have no idea what happened other than redemption and for some of you in this room you may have felt like i I wasn't very useful to the lord at some point in my life but here take hope we see mark who's now of all the people paul could ask for he says get mark and he adds he's useful to me he went from useless to useful he went from being a, a a fruitless to fruitful from a shirker to a worker to took me all week to think of that one, man. Uh, you understand? Now, that, that, that may not be for everybody, but there's somebody here who maybe feels like uh, God's through with them. And you need to hear 2 Timothy 4, 11. God's not through with you even if you're through with you. So what's the point of all this? 11 and 12, what's my first point? The point is simple. One of the ingredients, one of the steps in a life that demonstrates this kind of peace is simple. Paul reaches out for companionship. Friendship, community, if you're a note taker, point one, steps to peace, friends, not to put too fine a point on it, friendship, community, he reaches out, he wants his friends, he wants co-laborers in the ministry, sometimes we think of these super saints, as you get closer to the Lord, they don't need anyone, we sort of imagine, we imagine the Apostle Paul sort of sitting meditating in this dungeon like, "Mm, you know, I don't need anyone, I'm just here in the presence of of the Lord and that's all I need. There may be some Eastern religions that sort of say we need to, we need to uh, shake off the material world, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is the opposite. The closer Christianity teaches the closer we get to God, the, the closer we get to our brothers and sisters in Christ. That you actually get more community, not less. You need people more, not less. Here's the Apostle Paul. This is Paul, man. This is like all-star pastor, teacher, missionary, apostle of all time. And what's he saying? Say, man, I could use some friends. So how much more do we? He's saying, and not just one friend, but he's got Luke. He wants Timothy and Mark. He's like, I need my small group, yo. His hill house, if you will. So here's the application point. Are you actively seeking to develop friendships in your life? Couple things need to be said about this friendships in the church. I think the church sometimes gets un. Well, let me back up first. There's a buzzword going around current Christianity. You know, Christians we develop our own jargon. We develop our own language, and everyone does it. It's not every every group does this, but Christians, you know, we have our own. So, any anybody else, you say, "How you doing?" They say, "Fine." But if you ask a Christian, "How you doing?" I'm blessed and highly favored. Ah, I see you speak my language, right? (laughs) And you do the secret handshake, dove, or whatever it is. I'm not, I'm not sure what, it changes. But right, you got the secret language, okay? And the current buzzword that I hear everywhere, and maybe you're not hearing it, but I hear everywhere, is you say, man, what is, it, what is Christianity right now? What's the movement in Christianity? And people kind of, maybe it's just because I'm surrounded by a bunch of hipsters, but at least the people I know, they sort of look off in the distance and they say, man, what I'm looking for is Community. Community seems to be this buzzword. That's cool. The problem is, I can't find anybody who knows what that means exactly. It means, I know coffee is involved, uh, small groups maybe, I think Twitter's involved. I'm not real clear on what that is. So I would like to nominate, instead of community, which is this buzzword, I would like to substitute. I would like to right now in all of Christendom, nominate a new word to replace this word community which is so cool sounding but i don't know what it means and the word i'd like to use is this friendship because that's what people are looking for They say, man i want want community what does that mean it means i want to do life together what does that mean i want to lean in on the truth of god's word together why must you speak in parables like what does any of this mean and what they mean is what i want is a friend i'm like finally i understand and i understood that when i was four You know what I mean? So let's just swap out that word friendship. Now, here's here's the thing with friendship. Here's the thing. When it comes to friendship in the church, the problem is you cannot be friends with a church. The church gets unfairly blamed for doing stuff and often unfairly praised for doing stuff that collectively this organization did not do or fail to do. So people will come to me because I'm a pastor, right? So people come to me, well, my old church, they did this. My old church, they didn't do this. Or, you know, this church, they did... I'm like, whoa, 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 slow down. The church didn't do anything. Like at no point did all... Everyone who's ever been to City on a Hill collectively get up, bring the building with them, and come and bring a casserole to your house, right? See? The church is caring. No, 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 no. A person... Or a group of people who you saw at this gathering did something or did not do something to you. Now, I hope that we create in churches a culture where that happens so much that for shorthand, you can say something like, that church is a kind church. I mean, I want that to be such a culture that people associate that, that you just say in shorthand, the church. but technically the church never did anything. That's why Paul doesn't say, Timothy, if you get a chance, send Ephesus. And have the whole city and all those who claim Christ march their way to me. Right? No, no, no. He says, I want Timothy. He's naming names. And that's why it's so important. Like, it's so hard when you come to church. People say, it well, was, that? and it's hard because, is it a friendly church? Well, every church is friendly. Friendly means you're nice to the people you know. The trick is to be a hospitable church. That means you're nice to the stranger and the person who comes in for the first time. And you leave space for them. And you think about the best seat in the house. Everybody know the best seat in your house, by the way? It's right there. It's the back row closest to the exit. That's exact. I'm dead serious. That's exact. That is where every guest who comes to church for the first time wants to come. You know it because you came for the first time and you sat there. In fact, you can judge how long someone's been at church by how far forward they're willing to sit. Like, are we going second row? Are we? We don't know these people that well. Right. We've been coming 10 years. Man, they may get crazy and culty. And when they start handling snakes, I want to be right there. Boom. I'm out. You know what I mean? Because as soon as they're sacrificing a chicken and putting on the row, I'm out. You know? because nobody knows what happens in church they just want to be right that is the best seat so all i'm saying is leave it for your guests you know what i mean you guys didn't know you're like hey i could sell my seat i'm just saying it, right but churches that think that way what are they doing they're anticipating the needs they're remembering you remember how hard it was when you came to this place for the first time some of you're like i'm here today and it is hard right to be hospitable but a church never does something or fails to do something it's people. And all I'm trying to say is this. To those of you who are first-time guests, I've picked on those that have been around a while. Now, let me pick on you who are here for the first time. Sort of an equal opportunity offender. Uh, it takes work. It takes work. You know, people say, oh, why don't you go to church? Why don't you go to that small group? Especially a small group. You know, like a hill house or something. I, don't know, I won't know anybody. You won't know anybody. And that's why you won't go. You won't know anybody. Well, you didn't know anybody in kindergarten... And yet you went back. You know what I mean? And it worked out great for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It takes time. It's not easy. And everybody says, well, that church wasn't friendly or that church. You know, I've had a, I've had instances in my church. I know this happened because I could see it. And I couldn't get to them in time. But a first-time guest sat down next to another first-time guest. And both of them were looking at the other thinking that they'd been there for 20 years. Right? And they both leave going, well, that place wasn't very friendly. I'm like, fuck! I can't, like, label people. I'm normal. Talk to me. I'm new. Forget me. Right? You just the fact is it takes time to plug in. So uh, I would put it this way. I'll give you a simple way and a very like complex way. Uh, the simple way my kids, I have three children and they're becoming school age. And when we send our kids off to school, we use this little nursery rhyme and I don't think you outgrow it. So I want to give it to you when it comes to reaching out for community. When it comes to friends, this is what we teach our kids as they're going off to school. It's a, it's two little couplets. We say this. I went out to find a friend, but there were none to be found. I went out to be a friend and friends were all around. Now, if you are right, right. If that is too smarmy, if that is too saccharine sweet for you, then then do it this way. Do it this way. This is a Tim Keller quote. Everyone talks about how they want community, but mention accountability or commitment and they run the other way. I like my way better. It's a nursery rhyme. Okay. But his is 140 characters or less. So that works too. Everybody understand? It takes work. When you say, I want community, you're not imagining, why do you want community? Quick, give me a reason. Five, four, three, two, one. Uh, uh, uh." Nobody says, because I want to pour into others. And when it's like nine o'clock and I'm already about to fall asleep and they call me, I want to go babysit their kids because they're having an emergency. Nobody says that. The first thing you think of is because when I'm in trouble, I want somebody to be there for me. We all do but it works both ways. And the encouragement for Christians is that we can get better at this. As pastors, we are the worst. We are so bad at this. I will not speak for the Lechies. I will only speak for the awkwardness that I have created in my church. Because pastors love their people, they do things that are so awkward. What We love people, and we want you to form these community, and we want you to have these friendships. And so that cannot happen, right? Right? It can't be forced. Friendships can't be forced, but we don't know that. And we just love you so much. And so there'll be people at my church and I know their story and I know their story and they don't know each other, but oh man, it would be perfect. So as they're leaving, I'm like, uh, yeah. Uh, hey, you y- meet you. Yeah. You guys to be friends and go to coffee this week. And they're looking at me like, what just happened? <laughs> did this pastor just set us up on a play date? <laughs> did, did that really just happen? And it is so awkward. And I've done it dozens of times, right? And what I've realized is we can't force that, you know? So what's the best thing pastors can do? What we can do is try to create an environment where, hey, let's get some people in smaller groups and who knows, friendships might form. So instead of forcing friendships we create hill houses at your church that's an example or the ignite accelerate right or the or the feeding program right nothing puts you together like shoulder to shoulder serving that's a great way to get to know somebody you're doing eight thousand meals or whatever the record is you guys are up to it's unreal and you're kind of you know as you're you know scooping the the macaroni and cheese you're, you're talking to somebody right and um uh, uh, that that 's a great way to do it. it just it, you know all the best we can do is kind of give these formal things and sort of hope for the best. like a small group or a hill house is just the petri dish upon which the bacteria of friendship that 's a terrible illustration just sort of forget that one, but you get the point right? The hill house is the egg is the nest upon which the eggs of friendship it 's even worse. This is derailing. you get the point though right uh, small groups i can 't promise you a best friend soaking prayer, these things. Uh, but boy, they'd be a good place to start, wouldn't they? And all I'm saying is, if you want this perfect peace, it's not unspiritual to reach out for some companions. Just know that when you reach out for companions, it's not just what they can do for you. But it's a, it's it's accountability, it's commitment, and it will take time. But it's not just, you know, I, I don't know, by the way. I do not know if Mark made it there. I know Luke was there, Paul was there. But what if Mark and Timothy made it there? What kind of Bible study is that? Mark, Luke, Timothy, and Paul. Hey guys, let's study the Bible. No, let's write some of it. Luke, you should put the words of Jesus in red. That's brilliant! I can't prove any of that, but I hope it's true. Point number two, you need friends? Here's number two. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Point point number one, you need community. You need friends. Uh, Point number two, Paul's saying, not just friends, but for the record, I'm freezing. So please bring the cloak. Point number two is cloak. (laughs) I tried to think of something spiritual to say about this. Uh... It means cloak. Um, the Greek word for cloak is cloak. Uh, like I'm reading a commentary and it, 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 I'm reading this. And it says a large circular piece of cloth to form a garment with a hole cut out in the middle for your head. I'm like, yeah, that's a poncho. That's. I'm reading like commentaries that I, I paid money for these books and they're expensive. And I remember just sitting in my office laughing, reading travelers valued them for their wait for it warmth i'm like you think it's a how have i not written a commentary like yeah it's a it's a cloak and you'd wear it and it'd keep you warm so my point is this sometimes we think of super spiritual saints as rejecting any comfort whatsoever and if you take care of yourself well then you know that's not very spiritual no listen What he's saying with this whole cloak thing is take care of yourself. Yes, not everything has a physical connection, but some things do. If you tell me, I've not been very loving and I've 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 been very irritable lately. When's the last time you slept? Well, I sleep one hour a night and I haven't slept in two weeks. I'd be like, listen, man, you just need some rest. Don't tell me that like the demon of anger is upon me. When you're just hungry, have a sandwich. You know what I mean? You're not you when you're hangry. Some things have spiritual connections. Some things don't. And all I'm trying to say is some people try to be more spiritual than God. And here the great apostle Paul is like, if I can improve my circumstance, I'm going to do it bring me the cloak. I left it with Carpus at Troas. He knew that when he would be thrown in jail, they would just take all his possessions. So he left it. He doesn't say bring my cloak. He says, bring the cloak. Paul's a steward. It's God's cloak. Carpus has been the steward of it for long enough. I would like to be the steward of it again because I'm freezing. See, that's all. Uh, The reason I don't want to over preach this point is come on. Be honest. In two thousand sixteen in Long Island, the point that needs to be preached is not, guys, you need more material possessions to take care of yourself, right? Don't be afraid to have some material possessions. Let's be honest. The pendulum has sort of overswung that direction. And so let's I mean, really the message for a preacher in twenty sixteen is if we were if we were writing this, it'd be like, and Timothy, bring my cloak. And my phone charger and my ipad and a microwave and a small fridge and like come on right i mean our problem is not that guys but hey i didn't write this it's second timothy four thirteen. my job is just to preach it and for what it's worth it's not a sin to take care of yourself it's not a lack of faith to go see your doctor and get checked up and you know taking care of yourself that's all that's it and also, he says, so the first one's friends, the second one's cloak, meaning take care of yourself physically. And the third one, bring the books and above all the parchments. We don't actually know what the books and parchments were. Were they documents? Were they sayings of Jesus? Were, his, were, were they Paul's citizenship papers so that he could prove he was a citizen And would be beheaded instead of uh, crucified or something. No one knows. But it's very hard for a modern day preacher of the gospel not to read this. And you, you probably see what I see. When he says, bring the books. It's probably study materials and things. And above all the parchments. How can that not be the holy scriptures? I think that's what it was. He's saying, reach out for friendship. Take care of yourself. You know, the cloak and all that stuff. But above all, the word of God. So let's apply it again to today are you taking a regular, steady diet of God's Word? A regular, steady diet is the key. The Apostle Paul knew... I mean, listen, he didn't memorize some of the Bible. He wrote it. The guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament is saying it's important to have regular communion in the Word of God. And that's the thing. This is not a book you read. Don't you know, like... People who, are, who have been pastoring for years and years, what do they do? They read through their Bible every day. They read through the Bible every year. Once a year, they try to reread the Bible. Why? Because that's where spiritual health, this is one of those steps toward spiritual health. You know, if I asked you, hey, you seem to be a healthy person. Oh, thank you. Yes, physically I am healthy. Can I ask you a question? Looking back in 2015, which meal was it that made you healthy? I mean, unless there's some like crazy meal you had. Uh, most of you, I think, would answer, well, it's sort of a compounded effect, you know. I've been eating clean and exercising and, and you know, it's kind of like all the meals together. I don't know that I could pick out one meal that has sustained me. That's ridiculous. You know what I mean? Which in 2015 really helped you? I don't know. I mean, maybe there was. Maybe there was one verse that really did it. But that's the problem. You don't really know. And that's why you stay after it. There's plenty of times when I read the Bible and I'm like, well, I must have gotten something for six months from now because I guess I'll just plant that seed. I have no idea. You know, I don't get done with Leviticus and be like, that's how to sprinkle the blood of the bull. It's going to bless me today later. I was just about to create a tabernacle. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know, but it's in there. And I don't think you could say, well, I analyzed it and over the last year it's this meal that did it. I mean, sure, we have our favorite scriptures but I think it's got to be daily. I, I myself, if you're curious, I uh, am trying to read through the scriptures again this year. I have a daily Bible reading plan that I'm using. Do I do it every day? No, legalist. Why are you asking me that? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I skip days because I'm—I uh, I don't mean to, but I get busy or I fail to do it. And so uh, here's what I do: the next day, I watch this. It's very complex, my system. i will will read what I missed yesterday and catch up. Uh, <laughs> so uh, there you go. Um, that's what a guy who's trying to do it faithfully looks like, right? I, I didn't want you to think that I was like meditating and oh, I just wait for the word to come to me and oh, you know, it doesn't work that way. I just go through a daily Bible reading plan. Uh, I hope that's uh, helpful to you. That's it. Friends, cloak, books. Everybody got that? Friends, companions, take care of yourself, Bible. Here's the deal. Uh, Those three things I want you to do, and I believe that they will be steps to help you reach this breakthrough level of perfect peace that Paul had. However, there's this fourth thing, and you can't take it. And ironically, it's the thing you need the most. All the friends, the cloaks, and the books in the world... Will not be enough to grant you breakthrough levels of peace without this fourth thing. And it's the fourth thing you can't go and do. Every one of the three things I did. That's why I try to be very specific. I even mentioned my own application of this. I try to be very personal. To show you these are things you could do right now. You could go out and do them. And there's still not enough to give you perfect peace without this fourth thing. And the fourth thing you cannot go and do. Because it is a gift. And it must be come to you look what he says at my first defense no one came to stand by me but all deserted me may it not be charged against them see there's that perfect peace but the lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the gentiles might hear it and in this way i was rescued from the lion's mouth paul sees this moment where he's at this public trial this public forum you know they, they held trials in rome in a public forum and he looked around as he's about to give his defense And he could say all these things as to why he should save his own skin. Instead, he looks around and he sees every corner of the Roman Empire. He sees travelers from Rome. He looks around sees every tribe, tongue, and language. All these different ethnicities and cultures. And as, as a preacher who spent his life trying to spread the gospel as far as he could, he looks in this moment and doesn't think, how can I save my skin? He looks in this moment and does what? Preaches the gospel. And so he preaches the gospel going, yes, this is a great opportunity. And that's what he means in that moment. Why? Because the Lord stood by him. Books, I mean, uh, friends, cloaks, books. But the fourth thing, the Lord's presence. There's no way to get peace without the Prince of Peace himself, King Jesus, in your life. And notice he says, the Lord stood by me. He does not say, the Lord's teaching was of great encouragement to me. Or, you know, Jesus is a dead prophet, dead and in the grave. But his memory is very inspirational to me. It's like he's risen metaphorically in my heart. No, 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 no. He says, though, listen to me, only a risen Savior can stand by you. Only a risen Savior can do that. And that's what Paul says Jesus was. The Lord, not metaphorically, he believed the Lord stood by me. I'd have high-fived him, but he's invisible. The point is he's just right there. Like a pair of jumper cables pouring voltage from Jesus' power into Paul, he preached the gospel at that public hearing. Jesus stood by me when he needed a character witness and a defense. No human was there, but Jesus was his defense advocate. Do you know the song we sing sometimes? Lord, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. That's the idea. Jesus stood by Paul. He was his character witness. And that is what we need for that perfect peace. It's not enough. Those three steps are good. Yes, you need those companions. Yes, you can go and reach out and try to be a better friend. Yes, good. You should do that. And yes, you need to take care of yourself. In Paul's case, cloak. In our case, better health and habits. Fine. And yes, we need books. Yes, daily scripture and reading. And if you miss a day, you know, move on. It's... But without the Lord standing by us, what hope do we have to have that perfect peace? Now, in closing... Have you ever considered what that advocate, having Jesus as your defense attorney, have you ever considered what that cost? You know, if you get charged with something and you're innocent, you want a good defense attorney. But when we get charged with being guilty sinners, we want the best defense attorney money can buy. Have you ever considered what it would cost? What did it cost? Think about this for a second. What did it cost for Paul to be able to say this verse? Though none stood by me, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And in this way, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. To get at the answer to that question, we have to go back to an ancient source. And not just one, but several commentaries believe that Paul was alluding to a specific passage of scripture, that Paul here was alluding to the 22nd Psalm. In Psalm 22, we read things like, why hast thou forsaken me? Or, there is none to help. And these, to me, sure sound like Paul saying, all deserted me. right? And yet, though all deserted him, the Lord was with him. Again, in Psalm 22, I'll give you another example. There's these metaphors where so many people are against him. The psalmist writes, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. And there's this one part. There's actually two places. One in the early part of Psalm 22, where he says, they open their mouths to devour me like ravening lions. And then later in the psalm, the psalmist cries out, save me from the mouth of the lion. And here Paul says, sure enough, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Is everyone clear what I'm asking? What did it cost for Paul to be able to say, I was not forsaken because Jesus stood by me? Here's my question. For Paul to say, I was not forsaken because Jesus stood by me. Who stood by Jesus? You know, Paul adds that he wasn't abandoned. But you know what? Jesus was. Paul says, I wasn't devoured by the lion's mouth. But when he came to the lion of Rome, Paul wasn't crushed, but Jesus was. Think about books and parchment. The book of the law wasn't brought to Jesus. The law crushed him on the cross. He was crucified, the Bible says, as a lawbreaker, though he had done nothing wrong. And cloaks... A cloak wasn't brought to Jesus. He was stripped of his cloak and they cast lots. They gambled for his garments. Crucified naked. And where was his companions? When Jesus needed them most, they were gone. Who stood by Jesus when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? His only answer was not like Paul's. Jesus was there for me. His answer was heaven's silence. Paul's defense and ours was expensive. It was purchased at infinite cost to Jesus. I wrote this down because I wanted to deliver it correctly. Jesus stood alone to be devoured by the roaring line of hell so that he could stand with us in our moment of trial. Let me say it again. Jesus stood alone in his moment of trial so that he could stand with us in our moment of trial. And he will stand with us. Today, at judgment day, at infinite cost to himself, he stood alone and he allowed himself to be crushed by the jaws of that lion so that he could forever stand with his people and save us to the uttermost out of love. Out of his great love for you and for me. He was, if you'll think of it this way, he was cut off from heaven so that you and I would never have to be. He went into the hell of the lion's mouth so that you and I could be delivered. He fought the powers of death and yielded to his father's will to earn for us a kingdom that he will safely lead us to. Now, do you have the assurance of the Lord's presence in your life? Have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? If not, there's no peace without the Prince of Peace. All the friends and cloaks and books in the world won't help you if there's no one to stand by you when you face the judgment of God Almighty. You need the risen Lord. And you can, the good news, you can accept Him today. If you are not yet a believer, you can place your faith and trust in Jesus today as your Lord and Savior. That's why they call this church a gospel preaching church, right? That's the idea. Proselytize, convert. That's totally our goal. It's evangelism. It's telling the good news to as many who will listen so if you're not a believer you need the risen Lord and you can receive him today now if you are a believer then this last promise has your name all over it this is the last verse in the whole uh, sermon so this is it the Lord will rescue me Paul says from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom to him be the glory forever and ever amen Christian I want you to know you may not have thought about this but this is true for you you cannot be killed (laughs) as a Christian Paul says it perfectly. He's going to rescue me from every evil deed that's aligned against you to kill you. In fact, there are some of you in here that could give testimony. We won't ask for a show of hands, but there are some of you Christians in here that you know there is something that happened in your life that unless God did his thing, you should actually be dead right now. I don't mean like you should be worse off. You should not be here. You should be dead, but God did something. And you know that verse, verse 18, you know it to be true, literally true in your life. And some of you are like, that's true like three or four times for me. I I don't know your story. Okay. But that's literally true. And that's the promise to a Christian, to a blood bought, born again, child of God. Watch this. You cannot be killed because God's promise is that he will save you from everything that wants to kill you every single time, except once, except once. There's one thing that will kill you. And in that moment, you'll be brought safely into his heavenly kingdom. So even then, you're good. That's perfect peace. What do you do with a guy like Paul? What do you do with a Christian like Paul who believes this stuff? Who knows that the Lord is with him? What do you do with a guy like that, huh? I mean, you can threaten him. You tell Paul, he better get in line and quit standing up for Jesus and preaching the gospel or we're going to throw him in prison. So they'd go and tell him, Paul, we're going to throw you in prison what do you think of that he'd say well you know I want to to know Christ and share in his sufferings they'd go back to the boss what did Paul say yeah he said if we throw him in prison it was like the best thing that could happen to him well then double down go back and tell Paul if you don't quit preaching the gospel we'll kill him Paul we're going to kill you if you don't quit preaching the gospel well for me to live as Christ and die is gain go back what did he say he said, if we kill him, it's a promotion. What do you do with a guy like that? I mean, I tell you, as Christians, what we do is we say, let's follow the example insofar as we can. He reached out for friends. We should reach out for friends. He reached out took care of himself. We should reach out and take care of himself. He, he, he studied the word daily, right? We got to do that. But there's this fourth thing that even Paul would say, you can follow my example, but at the end of the day, you need the presence of the risen Lord. That's the difference maker. That's the thing that gives you that peace. And if you're not a Christian, I urge you, I plead with you that today would be a day of your salvation, that you would receive Him as Lord and Savior. And if you are a Christian, let's live this week unashamed because of His presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your presence. We thank You for the infinite cost, Christ, that You paid so that we would not have to stand alone face the judgment of god that we would be safe from every evil deed and then safe on the one in which we die we're safe then even then i pray for the christians in the room that they would take heart this week i pray for those who are not yet believers that you would continue to convict them and tug at their heart until they're drawn into relationship with you in jesus name amen Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.